So growing up, I lived right next to a cemetery. And apparently one day when I was a little kid sitting in the backseat of the car, I turned to my mom and said, Mom, what is that place? And she responded in a very matter-of-fact way. Well, that's where we bury dead bodies. Apparently the car went silent for a long time. I suddenly broke the silence with another question. But mommy, where do they bury the heads? Hello and welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast all about living lives that unleash courageous love in small and big ways. I am Reverend Sean, one of your hosts. And as you heard from that story, a real story from my childhood, today we are talking about death and memory. A topic that leaves most of us as confused as I was as a kid with how to deal with it or even understand it. With fall hitting the Northern Hemispheres, it's also that time of year where you start to think about death and memory more often. I mean, to be honest, it's kind of been that time of year for the past, well, two years as we've been living in this pandemic reality in which death has become close to many of us. But maybe that's why it's even more important to spend time thinking about death when death has become so close because it's too easy to be desensitized to it. And so today on the podcast, we have an amazing conversation from members of our community who participated in a class led by one of our church members, Terry Ashley, called Thoughtful Endings. Thoughtful Endings is a course all about preparing for the end of our lives. But it's experience that is intentionally done in community. I'm going to turn it over to Terry to share with you about where this idea came from. Because it came from a real lived personal experience with death and the end of life. I came to the concept of drawing people together to talk about death and dying explicitly writing advanced directives in a community group after, uh, well, two things. One was that I had been volunteering as a hospice companion and someone that I was working with didn't have directives and an emergency came up when I was with her. And everything worked out, but during that interim period of a few hours, I wasn't sure how to appropriately care for her because I didn't know what her wishes were and she didn't have them in writing. And so I came home and talked to my husband, Joe, about how important it was that we write our directives because I didn't ever want to put someone through that really tense situation of having to make a decision for someone else and then potentially regretting the choices that I might have made. I didn't want that for my family. Joe and I gathered resources and went to a group hub on a Sunday afternoon thinking we could knock those things out in an afternoon because we were motivated and we were, you know, smart people and we trusted each other's judgment. And we sat down and couldn't get past the third question because we just didn't have enough experience to say, well, this is what I want under those circumstances. After muddling around a few more weeks, I just decided that our biggest problem was that we didn't have enough experience. We had lots of resources, but we didn't have experience to draw from because so many of us are separated from death and dying. And that's part of our culture these days where it's, it's medicalized and institutionalized and taken away from the family home so much different than it would have been 100 years ago. So I pulled together four other couples and the 10 of us then over the course of a few months met several times and shared TED Talks and articles and books and podcasts and had really deep discussions about death and dying and what we would want. And, and the, the 
most important thing that we found through that process was, was sharing our experiences because collectively among 10 of us, we had a lot of experience with death and dying. We just didn't have it individually. So if we could share what that looked like with each other, we had a, a better framework from which to make decisions for ourselves. And so we, we completed that work in January of 16. And I was really excited because I thought, boy, we are so ahead of the curve. Joe and I were in our fifties. We were healthy. We, you know, certainly had 20 years before we'd have to pull out those documents again. And then in the fall of 17, Joe came home with a, a diagnosis of an advanced and very aggressive cancer. And he died 10 weeks later. And it was the blessing of having done this work together that, that allowed him to have a death that he was comfortable with, that was in alignment with his values, and allowed our family to come together and, um, and support him. We weren't divided about what we should do because we'd already had all those conversations as a family. And then the, the added benefit that I hadn't anticipated was that we had a community of friends who were all so comfortable about uh, with talking about death and dying. Everybody has good friends, but not everybody's able to step into that space. And because we had created that group together, our immediate family had a secondary circle of support that came in and out of our house just very fluidly and supported us as we supported Joe in his death, in his dying. It was that experience that gave me a motivation and a sense of mission about, about sharing this model with people. Terry's run a few of these thoughtful ending cohorts within our community. And so we gathered some members who participated in it into a conversation with Terry and Reverend Gretchen to explore what they learned from this experience. And so you're going to hear from Karen Harder, Joyce and Michael Trujillo and Jane Everham speaking together about what they learned from this experience of planning for their end of life. Karen Harder is going to start us off. My husband, Jeff, was part of her first pilot group back, I think, in 2019. I didn't go through that, but I know Jeff was very busy at working at, at his advanced directives and talking with me and talking with our, our daughters and getting things filed down. And I honestly don't recall why I didn't do it at the same time, but I think it was doing some other stuff. And then, and then we have the pandemic. And I was taking a class on death and dying. And I had a chance to visit with some, some folks who were facing that time and watch and learn what um, caregivers bring to the deathbed. I wonder if for us as Unitarian Universalists, it's a little bit more complicated because we don't have a shared creed. We don't have a shared scripture. And so this got me thinking about well, how do we face death? What would it mean to, for us to be as a faith community? accompanying one another to and through death. I was talking with some members of our caring listeners team, and we recognized that we needed, we needed an entry conversation, some beginning vocabulary, and none of us had done the work that Terry is talking about. So we were really grateful that Terry agreed to offer thoughtful endings again and hear one another's, what I think of as death stories. You know, what have we lived through? Um, what have we experienced? Who have we been with, sat with, who have we lost to hear our collective wisdom. I know that that it's, it's been good for me to, to think about death, my death, anticipating my death, how I think that's going to happen, what I think would be helpful. But it's been um, another thing, again, to hear um, 
to hear others do that, to do that in a group. Um, I know I challenge my own thinking based on what I've heard from others. I learn so much more um, hearing other people's death stories. Joyce and Michael Trujillo joined the conversation, sharing some of their collective wisdom. Michael and I, we had filled out our advanced directives in Living Will. Just not, you just fill it out because you think, oh, this is easy, one page. And going back through this class we've been in and really evaluating each thing I checked, it was like some of the things I had filled out earlier, I didn't feel the same about. There's some of the little things like, I don't want the TV on <laughs> if I'm dying. You know, I don't want to hear Fra Frank Azar. It was things taking more control of the little things of just having the TV off or I want my teeth brushed. We got to be more specific on our death wishes. In 2003, our son died unexpectedly in a car crash. And at that time, we had never talked about death or what you want. But as an 18-year-old, he had signed his driver's license with a heart on it to be an organ donor and never told us. So at, the, at that night, I just asked, is there anything we can donate? And it started the process. And he was a tissue and a cornea donor. And I just think that would have been a missed opportunity that we have to talk about these things with our children. And our children have certain wishes that we have to follow through on. <clears throat> Joyce, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess we've been through this process with both our parents, my son, very close friends. And, and you kind of see them. You kind of see what goes on. The clumsy part in this and that. And it would be nice that when, when I pass, it, it's, it's smooth for me, which it always is, but or going to be. But at the same time, it'd be smooth for everybody else on the planet, too. You, you know, it, it's more for other people than, than just us. One thing I love about these conversations is kind of the honesty that people bring to it. And, and that's why I so appreciate what Jane Evram shares next about why she said yes to the class. Terry had invited me and as much I admire Terry so much, I considered it, but I kept thinking in my own head, but I've got my durable power of attorney, so I'm done, right? I don't need to do anymore. And then Terry shared her full story. And shortly after that, a friend lost his partner and they had had no conversation, no preparation. They had a durable power of attorney, medical power of attorney, but they hadn't talked about other things and it was a nightmare for them. And so I thought, we don't want that to happen. I don't want that to happen in my, in my relationship with Brian. And so Brian and I both signed up for the class because we knew that it's more than that piece of paper. I think that one of the things I got from the group is that we have control. I mean, we may not be fully there when we die, but we can plan that now. We can be in control now of what that's going to look like. And we can save our families, our survivors, the stress of not, you know, not knowing what we would really want. And having gone through that with both my mother and my father, there's no, there was no manual out there. I, you know, I was feeling very lost trying to help them end their lives. And I can do that now for myself. I can save my son that anxiety and that worry. He can know exactly how I want my, the end of my life to happen. 
And I hope it takes a burden off him. And um, being slight control freak, I like the idea of being able to choreograph how I'm going. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm living a full life. I want to end that life fully, my own term. Now that I've introduced each of the speakers, I'm just going to let the conversation play out, turning it over to Gretchen to help facilitate the conversation. Jane, I was just thinking as you said that, that um, I was recalling my conversation with the doulas and their, the ways that they would talk with each person about their birth plan and that it's a way that everyone feels like they have some say. And then about 99% of the births don't go the way that you planned, but the idea of having the plan, so that way as a baseline, that that in and of itself makes it okay that it doesn't go according to plan. I think there's always a parallel in the process of birth and the process of death, that there's a lot of really similar Mm-hmm. both practical and emotional things that happen in, in those processes. So yes, to control and also in some ways having a sense of control is the most important, whether it actually goes according to plan. You're absolutely right. We, we can plan for so much and, and where we end up can be so such a different place. But, but what we do know is we've got one shot to make it to make it the best we can, there aren't any do-overs. So we, we can give it our best shot for our own well, well-being as we're dying. And beyond that, what, what we can do for sure is make it easier for the people who survive us. And I think when I'm at the end of my life, if I know that I've cared for the people that matter most to me because they're not guessing about what I want. They're, we've made amends. They know that I love them. That, you know, those important things. We have no unfinished business. Then my death will be easier no matter how that happens. And, and I think dying is part of our legacy. It's the last story about us that, that gets told. And I'm hoping that I can model a death that I could be proud of regardless of how that comes down. We we're all so interconnected. Death doesn't just happen to the person who's dying. It's a trauma for everyone who cares for them. And it's an everyday trauma. It's a predictable trauma. So it makes sense to do what we can to mitigate that on the front side. And that's what part of, a big part of why I think this is important work. Well, and I have a strong sense of denial that has served me well as kind of a um, soul booster. But, you know, the cliche is nobody gets out alive. And so why, knowing that, do we continually not pay attention to one of the most important events in our life? Absolutely. I'm reading a book um, by Forrest Church. It's called um, Love, Love and Death, My Walk Through the Valley of the Shadow. And he has, uh, the chapter I'm in right now, he's talking about the Titanic. And he says, we are all on the Titanic. And if we dodge the iceberg or we get a lifeboat, there's another iceberg ahead. So, so that's, that's one of the ways I'm thinking about death. Okay, here we are on the t- Titanic, which can sound really maudlin and fatalistic, but it's true. One of the exercises Terry has given us is a poem by... Mary Oliver, <laughs> and it's, and it's it, it, the metaphor Mary Oliver uses is, is death comes like a, like, a, like a hungry bear. 
and death purchases with its coins and snaps its, its purse shut. That's, that's not how I'm thinking about death, but I'm thinking about death like the, the inevitable march of time, like, like, the, like the horizon is, is, whether I like it or not, is, is rising and the sun is going to set. So this, that's, that's what I'm working with. And what do I do while there's light? What do I do with this time? And I, I find myself thinking about, about my date with death. And, and how I want to be hospitable. What would it mean to meet death in a hospitable way? And part of it is this, this planning that we're talking about to, to, to talk with our family members, how, how physically we want to meet death, how the, how the stage might be set, what the, what the words are, what's the, what's, the, what's the musical track playing in the, in the background. And, and I don't know whether it's, possible to do this. Um, one of the things that surprised me in the material that Terry shared with us is the different choices that people who work in this industry, the different choices that doctors make about their deaths, many of them saying no to those things that we would think would be part and parcel of care at, with a terminal diagnosis. Many of them saying no to surgery, no to chemotherapy, no to radiation, no, even to dialysis or, or um, um, antibiotics even. And, and yet, I'm also reading some work by a UU minister, Nancy Schaefer, who wrote a book of poetry during the time between which she was diagnosed with a terminal illness and her death. And she talks about how it may be easier to have gone quickly but it would not be as rich. So that's where I'm stuck. How do I meet death, you know, with a slam of the door in, in, in its face or waltzing out the door or kind of, you know, cracking the door open and having death come in? I, I don't know. I was thinking of the lesson that we're told as ministers that the most important act of ministry is how you leave. Everything else you do in your entire tenure, it is less important than how well you leave. And just what you said really reminded me this idea of that it's the last story, that it, that it can have like such a lasting impact, how that goes for all the things we do in our life that we spend often so much intention and care thinking about that this thing that could have such a major impact on the world after we're gone, that we spend so little, little time thinking about it because you just, it, we don't, as you said, it sounds dreadful or whatever, but actually it is the biggest gift that we could offer the people that we love and into the world to really think about that with intentions. I love the idea of it being the last story of our lives, how we die as part of that legacy. I think about the, the messages for the end, and it's not as though this can be scripted, but it's been really helpful to spend some time on material around the kind of the final words, the final things that need to be um, wrapped up in the end. And, and there's, there's five of them. There's, there's, I'm sorry, I forgive you, thank you, I love you, and then goodbye. How each of us is gonna say that to, to those we leave behind is it's, it's gonna be very personal, but one of the reminders from, from this time is that we don't have to wait for the end to say 
to say those things. Well, maybe with the exception of goodbye, but I'm sorry, I forgive you, thank you, and I love you can be said now and we can, and we can keep saying that until, until we do go. That's really beautiful. And it makes me think that a lot of the, the content of what you're discussing is about that end of lifetime, but, but ultimately has a big potential impact on how you're living before that. I'd love to hear if there's been things like that, that for each of you, you feel like has taught you about, about life by considering death in a more intentional way, what it has taught you about how you want to live. I don't know if this fits in there, but I, I think there's so much stress on individuals, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure they're meant to be inspiring, but, you know, like that one guy who says when he went to the cemetery, you know, there's 1962 dot, you know, 1975, and they say, make your dot count. And it's like, come on, man, give, give us a break. We're not all going to be in who's who, you know, it's like, can we just live our lives like we want to and without anybody telling us how we're supposed to do? We're all supposed to be president. Well, there can only be one president at a time, you know, and I, I think it's a cultural thing. You know, we, we love winners, but at the same time, we can't all be winners, you know, and, and we're not losers just because we don't win. And that, that applies to death too. You, you know, it's like, I don't want to go to heaven. I'm sorry. There's people there that I don't want to spend eternity with, you know, and, and you know, give me an alternative. Michael, I, I, you know, what you made me think of is yesterday I was listening to um, the podcast Elaine and Sean did a couple of weeks ago. And they were talking about the quote from Annie Dillard that we've been quoting a lot in this series about how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And they were reflecting on how it can feel like a judgment or an indictment of, you know, you're wasting your life kind of idea. And, you know, where they came around to is a sense of just, just how important the mundane parts of life are. It reminds me of, there's a poem, I think it's Marie Howe, and it's uh, called What the Living Do. And it's a list of just things like, you know, put on the tea kettle, do the laundry. It's a reminder of, you know, that when it comes to living, what it means to live, it actually is so filled with so many mundane, small things. And that that is, we should, we, we need to remember that that's worthy of cherishing the, the most simple daily acts of care. And I, I hear that in what you're saying is coming to terms with death is also about accepting a sense of the, the regularness of life and how beautiful just being regular can be. And that that doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a, that coming to terms with death doesn't have to be a pressure to somehow make every moment, you know, carpe diem, that <laughs> instead it actually can be about cherishing the life that you have. I think the experience I had with both my parents, I learned more from their aging process than actually their death because neither one of them liked aging and they fought it and they fought it really hard. And, you know, spoiler alert, the golden years aren't so golden, but they're there and they're going to happen and we all have to go through it. And I found that that's helped, it helped me to let go of some things 
that I think that are part that where I enjoyed when I was younger and I shouldn't enjoy when I'm older, but and embrace others. I mean, I don't walk in the winter when it's icy because I don't want to fall down and break my wrist. However, somebody gave me crampons that I can put on my shoes. And so I now can walk on the ice and not be fearful. But I want to live fully, but understand that as I age, I it will be different and that that's okay. And to embrace that and find the, the goodness in it. I'm thinking about my mom who had this practice of sitting outside every morning, regardless of the weather, or if she didn't actually sit out there, she would do what she described, poking her nose out the door and, and breathing and, and seeing what the weather was. I, I think of it as her spiritual practice. Poke her nose out the, out the door, see what the weather is, breathe the air. That Amy Dillard thing, what's a real priority for me, what I need to do every day, I need to get outside. And if, if I were to die tomorrow or next week, still want to get outside today. <laughs> still want to get outside and walk and, and see the sky and, and just practice, practice that being. And maybe that's what mortality in the forefront helps me appreciate. It's not about the doing, but it's about getting out there and being. I think one of the inhibitors to doing this work is contemplating our own death. But another piece that perhaps stays hidden is is that in talking about our potential death, it brings up the deaths that we've experienced in the past. And I, I think there's a fear that opening those conversations are gonna open those old, those old wounds. I started doing hospice work back in 2012 after my mom died and then my dad died in 16 and my husband died in 17. And it felt so overwhelming and so painful. But what I found in doing these workshops and having these conversations with people over and over again is that there's healing that happens when we are able to share our stories and, and that our perspectives change as we tell the stories a, a new time and our stories change, what we need to tell and what we discover changes over time. And with that, the relationship that we've had with the person who has passed also changes. And I, that's my biggest surprise. I had a, a really difficult relationship with my mom in particular. And when she first died, that was really, really raw. And now over time, as I've told the story and I've learned more about aging and, and I've heard other people's experiences, my story about my mom has changed and my relationship with her has gotten so much better. And I didn't think that was possible when one person wasn't here, but it is. I, I wonder if others, if that resonates for others of you and what your experience has been like, just in terms of how these conversations have impacted your sense of losses in your life or how it's, if you resonate with Terry's sense of that shifting relationship. I make a practice when I go to the cemetery, I look people up around, you can find their background because you know, everything's online and I get a little history. We have cemetery plots, which people don't go to the, 
buy cemetery plots anymore. So that's sort of the loss of the death ritual. And we really struggled with, do we get a cemetery plot? And I call it my timeshare. And my friends right next to us, I said, we're going to be neighbors for eternity. You know? <laughs> like, so we, we have a sense of humor. And I've met, we have such a beautiful city cemetery and the wealth of knowledge there. And I've met the man who goes around and he's documenting the wildlife. You know, and we just get, you get to talking to people. The cemetery is not a sad place, but I decided when things were really too much for me, I go sit there because there is no time in the cemetery and it's just sort of a calm place. And when people say, oh, how can you do that? It's just so sad. And it's like, no, it's history, you know, and it's people's stories and just reading headstones, you find out a story. I think we've gotten away from funerals and well, we even, uh, Karen and I and Michael were at a talk with Dr. Wolfelt and he talked about the funeral and, you know, we all want, we want to call it a celebration. Why can't we just be sad and mourn and grieve and, and just be that person, you know, that is missing somebody and and we tend to like, oh, they're in, you know, they're great. They had a great life. I, I have to disagree with Dr. Wolfield. And, oh. and I've been to a lot of his talks and, and he's a wonderful man. But, <laughs> you know, when I, I would say since I've been going to funerals lately, they, I'm excited to see people. And people see other people. It's kind of like a, a reunion, you know. And and Ellen said, you should grieve. And, you know, you shouldn't be happy. And I always think, you know, you got the rest of your life to grieve. But right now, here are some people you haven't seen in a long time. And I remember at my dad's service, my mom and all my sisters being mad at me, seriously mad at me because I wasn't sad. And I was just excited to see people that I hadn't seen in years. And I didn't want to tell them, but I'll tell you, my son had dried six months earlier. That was sad. My dad's death was not sad. You know, uh, you know, I can tell you what sad is. And my dad's funeral, my mom's funeral, and everybody since then, it's not sad, you know, and everybody has something to measure against. I guess that's my measurement. And to me, sorry, Alan, I disagree. <laughs> it is true that it's one of those rituals I've been to many where there's a sense of why don't we get together when it's not a funeral. It brings me to another question I've been wondering about. You've been doing this whole thing in the context of the pandemic. I, it just makes me wonder what the, what it has felt like for you guys in particular to be doing this in the context of COVID. And I've asked myself, why this, why now? And I'm not sure what the answer is. I think my daughters would tell me it's, it's just developmentally appropriate mom as you the age that you are. And, and my mom died um, uh, almost a year and a half ago now. And we've had this pandemic going on. So all those things, all the people who have lost people could be the, the reason for thinking about death 
especially as a faith community. I think it's, it's good to ask ourselves, how are we doing with this mortality thing that is real and, and affects us? It's not just theoretical. Some of our community are, are living and, and living with this, and this dying thing right now. So how do, we, how do we be together with them? How do we see them in their loss and in their grief? One of the things that I heard at the grief workshop that Dr. Alan Wilfred had, had done, that how we no longer wear black armbands. It used to be that that was a mark of a loss and we would see people or we would, we would wear our black armbands for a year so that if we were off our game, if we were not focused, if we were distracted, if we were sad, well, people would know you've lost someone. Who have you lost? How are you doing? And we don't have that visual signal anymore. All the ways that we can talk about death and loss and grieving seems to me are, are worthy ways to explore how, how we can be good companions for one another for all of life. As you were talking, it made me realize like, you know, maybe part of the reason that this the COVID situation is people's unwillingness to take it seriously. That some of that comes back to our incapacities to talk about death, our sense of it being morbid, or you know dread, how dreadful it must be. That that part of this, the conspiracy theory, is born out of our profound just cultural practice of denial. We have so much muscle memory around denial that we can't. The cognitive dissonance of having to face more than 700,000 deaths in a, in a year, or just, we just can't. So we have to come up with another solution. Part of the spiritual practice in the midst of the pandemic is to actively be working against the denial. Just invite any additional insights about what is most essential in life or what is most essential in death. I guess my word would be compassion, compassion for my, everyone involved, even the people that are saying silly things, you know, <laughs> we have to have compassion for everybody around death because it's, it's different for everybody. <clears throat> the survivors are what it's all about. <laughs> Jimi Hendrix once said the death, the dead, they ain't crying. I come back to the the things to say at the end, the things to live to the end, to reflect on where it needs to be said. I'm sorry. I forgive you. Thank you. And I love you. I like to think about the idea that, that being able to talk about death and dying and planning for how we might want our lives to end is part of healthcare literacy. And it's, it's a literacy that we aren't very well versed with in our culture. But it's really essential, not only for our well-being, but for the people who love us. And that the easiest place to do this well is with friends and family and community. So I'm inviting everybody to start talking to their neighbors about death and dying. Thank you all so much for this good conversation. Thank you all for your time and your wisdom and insights and just being willing to to share some of what you've taken away. We really, it's really valuable. So thank you. Listening to that conversation makes me so grateful.
so grateful to be in a community that has difficult conversations with each other and is resourcing each other to have those conversations in community, to start weaving the fabric of our connections so that when we come to die, we've already created a community that started these conversations and who are able to be with us and those we love when we make that transition into what lies beyond this life. There's not enough words of gratitude for the gift that Terry is offering and facilitating these groups. She's going to be offering another round in January and February for those people who are interested in it. And thank you to Karen, Jane, and Michael and Joyce for sharing with us the intimacies of their experience. Now, with all that swirling, I'm going to invite us into a time of integration, of carving out a moment and space for our own work around death, particularly our relationship with those who we have loved, who have passed on. In the last 10, 15 years, there's been a real focus within Unitarian Universalism to notice and interrupt when we are appropriating cultures that are not our own. And it's around this time of year when many congregations in the past used to take up a practice of Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead, a cultural practice from parts of Mexico, Central and South America of honoring those who have died through the creation of altars. But it's actually super problematic and harmful for a congregation to see a tradition in another community from another culture and say, hey, I like that. We should do that too. And then to try and create that practice in their community without the cultural tradition, the embodied memory, the practices that are embedded in the cultural tradition of which it emanated from. And yet I think the reason why, especially white congregations are so interested in these sorts of practices is that we have lost our own cultural and indigenous practices of honoring what it means to be human which means honoring death, loss, and grief. And so when we see something like Dia de los Muertos, there's something within us, something very human in us that gets activated because we know that calling. We know what it means to be mortal. We know what it means to lose someone. And yet in our culture, we haven't been given the practices to help deal with it. My Latinx colleagues for years have asked us not to celebrate Day of the Dead Rightly so, if it is not being led by a Latinx contingent in your congregation who is in touch with that cultural memory of that cultural practice. At the same time, there are practices that are deeply connected to our own Unitarian Universalist tradition. For those of us who are white and come from a European space, there are many practices that emanated from the indigenous and traditional communities of Northern Europe. The most known of those being the time of Samhain where at the changing of the seasons and these Northern European climates and we see the earth going through this renewal, this fall, the, the leaves dying and preparing for winter, using that as a teacher, as a guide for the living to remember that we too are a part of that cycle. And so we can bring that practice of Samhain in because a part of many of our communities are people who follow an earth-based path. At the same point, even within our own Christian history, you know, although Unitarian Universalists are not exclusively Christian and are not a Christian faith now, we were Christian for most of our history. 
and Christians have marked All Saints Day and All Souls Day around this time with their own rituals for remembering the dead. Because we need a time as humans to grieve. And so I'm going to invite us into a practice of remembering, of remembering the dead. In the Samhain tradition, there is a practice in which you create an altar, a space of remembering and connecting with ancestors, ancestors that we knew intimately, lovers, friends, husbands, wives, siblings, nibblings, children, grandparents, even beloved pets. But also a way of connecting to those that we've never known. Great-great-great-grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, people, ancestors, chosen ancestors that come from places and times much different from our own. And so I'm going to invite us to build an altar together. Now, there's two ways that you can do this. The first way is that you can physically build an altar. You can follow my instructions as I'm moving through and physically assemble your altar, pausing when you need to. Or you can create a visualized altar, one that lives in your mind and your heart. Either way, if we're creating something physical or creating something in our minds and hearts, we're creating an environment in which we can connect to those that have died and find the threads of love that still hold us fast. Whichever way you're creating that space for memory to dwell, let us begin. It is time to build our altars together. I invite you to take a few deep breaths, preparing ourselves to begin. If it helps you, you can close your eyes, lengthening those inhales and exhales, letting your nervous system know that you're safe. Notice the thoughts and the worries and the things that you have to do that may be rushing in your mind, creating sensations of tightness in your body. And if you'd like to, you can invite those thoughts and those feelings to go. Using each breath, to release them, knowing you can pick them up when you need to. And if they're not letting you go, that's fine too. Tell them I see you and I'm here, but I'm bringing my focus to remembering. Set your intention. This moment is a time to dwell in memory to touch loss, to remember life, to feel connection across distance, to remember. The days suddenly become short this time of year, and the trees bear with rest and readiness. The change comes over and over this time of year and still stuns with its sudden simplicity, life rejoining life, earth returning to earth. Here in our hearts, let us welcome in the fullness of the cycle as the veil thins between what is and what is no longer living, honoring the festivals of Dia de los Muertos, Samhain, 
All Souls, Halloween, all of these rituals of connection across time and space. And the only way we can welcome in the fullness of this cycle is to allow the fullness of our experience to be felt. And so we are setting aside. And so set the intention that in this time, that this is a time for memory, for remembering, for gratitude and grief, for whatever comes up, gratitude and grief, for all of the tangled blessings of this life. Imagine in your mind's eye that you are moving about a safe place, a place that fills you with good memories. Where are you? Look around. What do you see? What colors and shapes? What light dances? Do you recognize this place? Is it a place you've been to with your body? Or a place that lives only in your mind? What sounds enter your ears and smells entering your nose? Where are you? You feel safe in this place and you felt connected. Connected to yourself, grounded, but also connected to others. You continue to explore this world moving as your body loves to, looking for your altar. Each one of us has an altar in this space, and each one of our altars is unique. It could be a small tree branch laid across, tucked up against a tree. It could be a large, wide wooden table inviting you and others to take a seat. Explore the world until you find it, and you will know it when you do. You run your hands along its surface, feeling the texture, and you know it's time to begin. You set down the bag that you've been carrying and you open it. Reaching into your bag, you begin to pull out photos. Pictures of people who you have loved but are distant from you now. Distanced by the way of death. Distanced by the way they live far away. Distance because, distant because of life circumstances that have pulled you apart. As you pull out a photo, you look at it, gazing upon the face that you see, remembering their name, noticing if they're happy or serious, goofy or serene. Are they doing what they always love to do? Is this a photo taken from a specific moment that you remember? A family gathering trip? A trip, a moment at work? Place the photo on the altar. Take as many photos out. Placing them on the altar, gazing upon the faces of memory. Allowing whatever feelings come up, sadness, grief, love, laughter, anger, to simply be companions with you at the altar. 
You might even, as you're reaching into your bag, feel an object. An object that reminds you of a loved one, something that they love to do, a favorite food, a fishing rod, a hard candy that they always had with them. You can add these to the altar too, for this is your altar. And if you want, you can look around the world and there may be some other objects you want to add, pieces of nature, household objects that feel right to put on your altar. And if it feels right, add them. You will know your altar is done and it feels right. And as you look at the faces, what do you feel like saying? I'm sorry. Or maybe I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. Or maybe goodbye. Or maybe something else entirely, something that you need to say to have them to know that you never got the chance to say. Whatever you feel, if you feel moved, speak to them. And you can say it out loud or speak it into the sanctuary of your heart and mind. By putting them on the altar, we remember allowing us to notice what part of them is alive within us. For as we see their face, a spark of their life ignites within us, showing to us how powerful love is, more powerful than death or distance. And so we allow ourselves to sink into the memories of the times that we spent with these loved ones, even the complicated times. The inevitable irritations of someone that you're closest to. We just breathe in all of it. Feeling the tendril threads of love and loyalty that connect you with them. And you can stay in this place as long as you need. Pausing the podcast allowing you to dwell in, in your altar space. And when it's time to leave, know that this altar is always available to you. You can visit it in your mind or maybe even begin to construct one in your home, creating your own personal space of memory. When you're ready, take leave of your altar, feeling the connection and the love permeating you in a way that cannot and will not let you go. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of The Deeper Podcast. I know it's been one of the longer ones, but it felt so important to pair the powerful stories from the Thoughtful Endings crew with a practice of memory, because the two go hand in hand. Being able to create these sorts of experiences and conversations from Thoughtful Endings to this podcast it requires a community, a community that's committed to investing in courageous conversations and in joyful resilience. And so we want to thank every person that supports our work, whether that's financially or through the gift of their service. If you haven't found your place within our larger community or would like to start supporting us financially, I encourage you to go to foothillsuu.org give and to find your place to give with gratitude. 
And as always, we love hearing from you. You can reach out to us at deeperpod, D-E-E-P-E-R-P-O-D at foothillsu.org. Thanks for listening. And until next time.